0: You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, with your host, Kim Olver.
1: This is Kim, and welcome to the 20th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. I am super excited about today's podcast. I have assembled a panel of exceptional humans whose skin tone categorizes them as Black or African American who live with discrimination and inequities every single day over something they have zero control over. Many black and white people alike fear having a straight-ahead conversation about race with one another because for blacks, it often isn't safe, and whites fear appearing racist for even having the conversation. Tune in if you'd like to hear what these four brave African Americans had to say to this white girl about what it has been like for them to live with darker skin in the U.S. of A. My goal in doing this podcast is to provide a space for safe, honest, direct communication. As an ally yourself, I hope you will create safe spaces to start some conversations of your own. Let's help break down barriers. Allow me to introduce today's guests, all of whom I am proud to call friends. The voice of Dr. Ruby E. Powell has been heard as a corporate trainer, motivational speaker, and professional development consultant. Additionally, Dr. Powell is an administrator, certified life career coach, workshop leader, and curriculum developer. She is the author of training curriculum and workshop materials. She uses her gift of teaching to motivate and encourage life change in people and organizations to facilitate professional and personal advancement through both, naturally and spiritually. With more than 20 years of experience in the mental health field, a BA in psychology, and an MA in human development counseling from Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois, Felicia Houston is currently the Community Development Liaison for the Department of Psychiatry at the U Chicago Medicine at Ingalls Hospital. Felicia is also a licensed clinical professional counselor and a consumer wellness advocate. Marcus Gentry, also known as Dr. Respect, has over 30 years of experience as a professional speaker, performer, and thought leader in the areas of resiliency, relationships, and transition management, and whose background is in the field of addiction. Dee chanson is an indie film director, producer, and writer. His company is Urban Writer Entertainment in LA. He has produced the films Black Line, Dark Girls, and Coming Soon, Dark Girls 2. I want to thank you all for coming to this podcast. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. I have put together these African-Americans and I want to speak with them about what it's been like for them because I know I can't ask you, it's a mistake I've done in the past, to speak for the entire African-American race about what it's like to live in the United States and be Black. So I'm not going to do that. I want to ask you what it's like for you. Specifically, we're talking about discrimination, oppression, and inequities. My audience is mainly people who genuinely want to be allies, but they don't have an opportunity to speak with people and get to know people on a personal level. So I was hoping that was something that we could do today and really dive in a little bit. Who would like to start? I just want to hear about your experience.
2: Well, I'll start Um... As an African-American female who currently possesses a doctorate degree, I've had a lot of discriminatory instances against myself. As you can see, I have darker skin tone. I've always worn glasses. I've always been full-figured. And I've always excelled in education. And so there are a lot of times when I'm presented in certain instances where people will look upon me because of what they see and not necessarily because of what I have to say. And so those have been my experiences from elementary school all the way through high school, college, as well as uh, postgraduate, and even on my jobs. At one point, I worked for the state for 27 years plus, and at one point, I was the highest middle manager in my department statewide, and I was the only African-American female, and I was the youngest. And so I had to always prove myself. I had to always make sure that my staff had the best performances and all of those types of things. So those are some of the experiences that I've had.
1: Well, Ruby, thank you for that.
0: I can tell you there's a lot of different experiences at different points. One thing that stands out for me, I remember going to a casting agent that was my agent for commercials and print ads and things of that sort. And when I was taking in some shots and I had a photographer do quite a few shots and she picked some of the ones that was there and this was a white female and she was very supportive of looking for opportunities for me to be in. But what she said was, she said, we only want to pick the ones that you're you're smiling in. She said, because being a black person and many of the people who choose you will be white, they are not comfortable seeing you if you're not smiling. It looks intimidating to them. So they'd rather see you smiling than not smiling. And that's something that I've seen not only uh, with that particular agent, but in other settings where if I'm around sometimes other white people and things of that sort, they assume that if I'm not smiling and grinning that I'm angry about something. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's that's an assumption that I think they have. I have some peers that have had the same experience, but that's Mm -hmm. at least one of my
3: experiences. Yes.
2: There are many times when I've been told... You need to smile more because you look angry when you don't smile. Mm. So for a while I walked around with this pasted grin on my face, regardless of how I felt, because of that
1: stigma of being an angry Black woman when I don't. Mm -hmm. Well, so you really, you had to pretend to be something that you weren't just to make other people around you more comfortable. Absolutely.
3: I think Mm -hmm. it's a part of our survival as Black Americans that we have to code switch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and have to be something to make other people feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's stressful. Yeah, it's, so. it's just stressful trying to be human first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you add gender to that, it's stressful. And then you add color to that, that's stressful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then you have a people, as African-American people, who have an identity crisis. And what I mean by this is that we're the only people that I know of on the planet that have gone through five or six different name changes, identities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It seems to be every 50, 60, 70 years, called something else. Now, let me explain, break that down. We have been colored, African, American, Black, Negro, Afro-American, mm-hmm. and you've been a nigger. So when you have an identity crisis, when most of the six or five different identities have been given to you by somebody else who doesn't look like you, mm-hmm. they, they have defined you instead of you defining yourself. Right. So <clears throat> it's been interesting moving through this life not being who I was set to be by God himself. Right. Or have other people describing you giving you definition and taking your power away from you. There's a lot to be said about that one's self-esteem. What does it do to you? What does it do to generations? What does it do to your culture? Tradition that you thought you had, but you take on somebody else's tradition and culture, just to survive, not live, but just to survive. Yeah. So it's a way that we have become, maybe we classified it as being normal now. It's become our normal. Mm but when you look at it it's nobody's normal on the planet no, it's, not. Uh-huh. It's, it's abnormal and we're not the only ones right so i can be pointed out across the street and saying that's a black man and everything that goes with that from your experiences goes with me with that perception
2: right right
3: he must be this because he looks like that right mhm right. uh-huh but I'm being identified, not by character or moral, I'm by being identified by, by my skin color
2: mm-hmm.
3: and what I may be dressed like. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So no one knows that I have a degree. I'm a degree man, uh-huh. if I'm dressed in jeans and a t-shirt and a baseball cap. Yep. No one's ever talked to me or spoke to me about who I am or what I'm thinking. Right. But if you ever gave me a chance Mm-hmm. to speak my truth, then you would know who I am. And we prob- you probably would understand that we have a lot in common, more in common than you think.
2: That's correct.
3: But because of historical displacement of many identities that have to do with us, it seems a little unfair sometimes that we're pre- kind of prejudged. And that's a kind of a hard thing to carry sometimes. But I just want to be human.
2: Right. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> yeah. we fight so that's hard. Absolutely right. And sometimes we fight so hard to validate ourselves by making sure that we dress a certain way. Sometimes I'm conscious of when I'm just running out of the house to go to the store. Well, suppose I run into somebody who I've encountered professionally. Are they going to accept me with my sweatpants and gym shoes and baseball cap because I didn't feel like combing my hair today? Or do I have to always make sure I'm well put together when I walk out of the house so that I can continue to validate who I am? And as you said, Chan, 95% of that have to do with the color of my skin. Them seeing me from a distance, not knowing me, but just knowing what I look like and having to answer for that.
4: I would just add, Chan, when you were speaking, I was just thinking back. I was in high school when they announced that we would be called African-Americans. And um, I went to high school, I went to Lake Forest Academy, um, and there was only maybe about 20 African-Americans there. And I remember the majority having this conversation about what we should be called. And I was sitting there like, why are you a part of this conversation? But at that time, I just sat there and I just took everything in. But I would just say for me, The discrimination has been there ever since grade school. We were bused into an area to go to a better school. We were bused into an area that we didn't live in. And when my brothers and I showed up, there were people outside of the bus telling us to go back to Africa. And I was like, I've I've never been to Africa. What are you talking about? I I didn't know what they were talking about. But they clearly did not want us there just because... color of our skin at lake forest academy there was discrimination i can still remember my advisor telling me that i should not apply to college that i should go to trade school and i was like based on what this is a college preparatory school and we paid a lot of money to go to that school so why would i go to a trade school but clearly she didn't tell anybody else that i would just say that when i think back over my life I think that i've experienced and i've experienced it so much that it just has become the norm it's like oh that's just the normal that's what you get from people but i would say recently i wrote in a book and i had to write to my 13 year old self Mm -hmm. and when i wrote to my 13 year old self that's when i realized that as a child i was traumatized by all of those (laughs) experiences just as a child because i never told my parents really what was going on because i was like we can i can handle this You know, my parents didn't understand. We lived in an African-American community, but we always went to schools that were not in our African-American community because we wanted a better education. But I never really told my parents about people. In college, I remember one time somebody put a letter under all the African-American doors. He slid a letter under our doors and the letter said, get out of here, niggas, go back to Africa. And I'm like, how did he get our room? How did he know where all the African-Americans were? Like we weren't all together. We were all in different dorms. How did he know where we lived? And nothing was done. Nothing was done at all. It was just like, okay, he has rights and you have rights. Mm. Wow. Interesting.
1: I would say his rights stop at your door.
4: Exactly. And I remember him saying that he didn't hate us. He said, I don't, I don't hate you. I'm just for the advancement of my people. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, how much more can your people advance? Like, I'm confused. That was his way of thinking. He didn't want us there because he didn't want us to advance. And he was allowed to do it on a a campus. I was at Bradley University and he was allowed to do that. It's just like, that was the norm for me that everywhere I went, that's what you experienced.
1: Listening to you, one of the things that it reminds me of and probably one of my personal missions is to try to help people that look like me understand the privilege that we have, even though we didn't ask for it, even though I don't necessarily want it. It just exists. Like I have never had to think about the color of my skin. I just don't think about it. Even when I found myself in an environment that was predominantly African-American, I didn't think about, "Ooh, you're the only white girl here. The color of my skin is just not an issue for me. And I think that's part of privilege, right? That has to be part of the privilege that comes with being white. White people don't think about that. You have to think every day when you walk outside of your home, I'm a black man or woman. And that means something, especially when you're encountering white people, it means something.
3: Can I add something for just a moment? Absolutely. Privilege. That's a very, very interesting word that I know a little about. Having the history of punishment for being who I am has been traumatizing Mm
1: -hmm.
3: to the spirit, to the soul, to the culture, and to the world. To be labeled as something less, to be hung for running away, to be whipped for speaking, to be shot for rolling down a window, to witness a rape of a daughter or a wife in front of me where I'm being held by men who don't look like me and watch that go down, to walk out of the door of your house in a good neighborhood, drive your nice car, and you know that you're a stop sign away from being arrested because you happen to be an African-American man who's dressed well, living well, intelligent, and going to a great job. And you own the company. (laughs) There's a lot to be said. There's fear on both sides. And I'm wondering, I'm asking the question right now for the first time, I wonder what it is to live and not survive. (laughs) I wonder what that feels like. I've had blimps of living now, I'm 60 plus years old and I I live pretty well, okay. But there's still times in my living that I feel like I'm surviving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I've been surviving for such a long time. Mm
2: -hmm. And survival has become our norm, unfortunately.
3: Which is shameful.
2: It's very shameful. You know, I was listening to Felicia talk about her experience at Bradley University I went to high school at a very prestigious high school at that time. We were number one academically in the state of Illinois. We were actually 50% African-American, 49% Asian, and 1% white. And then I went to the University of Illinois Chicago in the College of Engineering where I was the only African-American female in the College of Engineering. So I had to compete with white men, Asian men, very few white females, and I was the only African-American admitted to the College of Engineering. Now, my life really did become a living hell because the University of Illinois did everything they could to make sure that I did not get an engineering degree from there. Mm. And they to say I didn't. I became a social worker. <laughs> I ended up getting a liberal arts degree <laughs> in criminal justice pre-law because the pressure was too great.
1: Yeah.
2: It was way too great. I didn't look at it then as discrimination mm. of the sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just looked at it as I took it upon myself. I said, you know what? This is just too hard for me. I can't do this. I sold myself short. Because I didn't want to compete and fight with what I can now recognize and identify as mm-hmm. or as discrimination. Yeah. That survival became my norm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And yes, it's ludicrous. It's ridiculous Couldn't be.
3: A lot of people have missed blessings because of this. Yes. The Earth has missed blessings because of this. We kind of get in where you can fit in, type of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But sometimes that's not enough.
4: Right.
3: Sometimes we want to fit in because this is where we're supposed to be. Yeah. You know, this is where we want to be. This is what our passion is. But the pressure can be so much sometimes that you mentally, spiritually just can't take it. Mm-hmm. Right. There's, enough, there's enough pressure just being human. Yeah there's no reason why our sister couldn't be an engineer right that's what she wanted
2: that's what i want
3: that's what we needed yes mm-hmm. <laughs> but she took a turn not for the worst right she took a turn to ease up her mental ability
2: mm-hmm. so she
3: became a social worker which helps us too mm-hmm. just think yes. if she would have been an engineer yes Right. What she would have become, right? Not for us, but for all of us. Mm-hmm. There's blessings being blocked by other people that sometimes walls we just can't get through, or get under, or get around, or get over. Right.
1: Yeah. So, how do you know when you're having a non-survival day? How do you know when the day is better than just surviving? Does it ever get better than that? I think it does.
3: It does. We can look at it a spiritual way. that The fact that I woke up this morning and I'm healed. Mm-hmm. I woke up this morning, I'm not sick and no one's around me is sick. I have food in my refrigerator. I have a car to drive, a gas in the tank, a couple of coins in the bank. <laughs> you know, I've got my health. I've got mm-hmm. half my mind.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. And I don't even think it's a goal to not be conscious of what it takes to survive and stay healthy. Because the consequence of that is not a good thing. So there's not a day that I walk out that I don't have to at least be conscious. It's not a burden. I become comfortable at being conscious about mm-hmm. what it takes, what I need to be aware of, how to move, how to operate, how to flow. And it's something that I and many of us have become accustomed to. And that's some of the things that allows me to keep going forward and, and not tap out. Because I know some others who have, have struggled and, mm-hmm. and made it through some of the same thing. But just to speak very, very briefly about another layer of this that hasn't really been addressed, Ruby spoke about it briefly, and that's the assumption that we will have comfort once we get with our people, because the oppressors is outside, but many of us have taken on the the mannerisms and behaviors of the oppressor. And so the layer of that is being a darker skinned black male. And to be a large, darker-skinned black male is another level of this thing. So I had to personally not only be conscious of white outside perception of me coming in, but also among my own people who had Mm -hmm. feelings about a darker-skinned male Mm -hmm. and whether that was acceptable or not, whether that was good or not, and was the goal to be something other than that. Ruby spoke a little bit about that. Chan spoke about the importance of identity. And that's where that comes, knowing who we are, feeling comfortable with who we are. That's a major thing. And a lot of times the discomfort of someone else not accepting us is rooted in us really not feeling good about who we are. Because when we feel good enough about who we are, we're able to manage in an environment where other people don't necessarily value us, but at least we have a good sense of who we are.
4: Yeah, and I think you make some great points, uh, Marcus. I think for me, when I think back, I think as a child in grade school and high school, I think I lacked confidence mm-hmm. because of the discrimination. And I think it got better for me when my confidence was built up and then I didn't care what other people thought. There it is. So then I would go to the store with my sweatpants on. There I would is. purposely go and buy a new car with some sweatpants on and a hat on. There just is. to see if I was going to be discriminated against just to see if I would get the treatment and then to be able to sit in meetings and when the majority is in a meeting and you're the minority and they say something that's inappropriate before I would just sit there and get angry. Now I speak up. I'm like, did you hear what you just said? Mm-hmm. Did, did you think about what you just said? Because mm-hmm. that was real racist right. and, and this is why I started using those moments as teachable moments because I realized that sometimes people just don't know. I don't think everybody knows what they're doing. They're not intentional with it, but Mm -hmm. I feel that since I'm in the room, it's my duty to let you know that what you just said was offensive to me and this is why so I think for me it just took some maturity and then once my confidence was built up so now it's like if people say stuff and it's not appropriate I just call them out on it because I don't care anymore what people think I don't care and I'm not gonna go out and buy a certain car because you feel this certain way or buy a house in a certain neighborhood I'm gonna buy a house where I want to live and I'm gonna get the car that I want to drive and I'm gonna go to the grocery store however I feel like going to the grocery store because that's what everybody else does. So, why can't I go to the grocery store without my makeup on? I can, but it took time to get to that point.
2: That's an excellent point, Felicia, because I think even our confidence takes such a beating sometimes mm-hmm. that we're conditioned from very early on. I mean, I went to an Af- all African American grammar school, but as I said, I've always been a curvy girl. When I was 13 years old, I had 30 year old men looking at me because I was curvy. And that brought negative comments from other people who didn't have that experience. I didn't invite that attention. I didn't create my body. I didn't welcome that attention, but others who didn't get the same attention discriminated against me or treated me differently because I was getting attention that I didn't want that they wanted. And so my confidence just continued to take a beating, take a beating until I got to the point where I said, I didn't create myself, God created me. And so I have to appreciate what God created because he didn't make a mistake. That's right. He did not make a mistake when he created me. That's I am right. fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes. And I'm made in his image. So once I got that realization, I no longer felt that sight, the, the way, just what you were talking about. I go to the store the way I wanna go to the store. If I want to comb my hair, I comb it. If I want to throw on a baseball cap, and I'm not going to go out and look crazy. Right. That's just not me. I have right. more pride in myself than that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I love sweatpants. And mm-hmm. right now, the way this quarantine thing is going on, Sweatpants may be around for a while. <laughs> 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 the sweatpants on my wardrobe. All right.
4: Exactly. Exactly.
1: <laughs> so, Felicia, I really want to thank you, first of all, for being willing to be in that position to kind of educate because I know that I do the same thing. And it's easier for me because I have white skin. So I can say to another white person, you know, that's kind of racist. I've been doing things like that with my mother for a lot of years. <laughs> and, you know, she doesn't mean it. She doesn't know, you know, and I had such a an amazing experience when my mother went to Africa with me in February of last year. And We were riding around with these guide and a taxi driver. And I always got given the front seat because there were a lot of us. And and I was the, quote, brave one that would ride in the front seat. So I'd get in the front seat and I'd have a conversation with whoever it was. And at the end of the trip, my mother said to me, you know, Kim, you're right. People are just people. They're just people. And I'm like, yeah, Ma. You know, my mother hasn't had that experience, right? So she's always been around white people. She did live in a suburb of Detroit before the race riots of Detroit. She was married to my father in 59. So she got out of Detroit before things got bad. But She was never really downtown Detroit. She was the suburb of Detroit. And moved to a small town in upstate New York where there wasn't a black person in sight except for the couple of foster kids that were taken in by this one man that he was a black man and he took in foster kids to help him out with his business. And it was really not a good situation, but there were always kids, different kids in and out of my school. I never had any exposure to any people of color, really, except for the occasional kid in one of those classes. And I know I've said many things in my lifetime that I'm not happy that I said, because I said it out of true ignorance, not because I'm an ignorant person, but because I just didn't know. Like the time I said, yeah, my husband went to a yard sale and Jewed him down. Well, I didn't know that was a racist thing to say. I remember I told Chan about this, my neighbor, who I love to death, and he was barbecuing, and I remember saying to him as I was driving away, before I could even take the words back and apologize, I said, oh, man, you're really slaving over that hot stove. Uh, right, Felicia, look at your <laughs> eyes. I know, like, I, know, I knew better. The <laughs> words came out of my mouth. But I, I need somebody that will say to me, don't do that again. Because sometimes I catch myself, but I don't know how many times I say things that people have a judgment about me for what I say. And it's not intentional. And I'm trying to get better. It's one of the reasons why I'm having these podcasts. One of the things I know is that these conversations don't happen very often in mixed company. Why is that, do you think? It's not safe?
4: I think it's... I'm sorry. What are you saying so, Ruby?
1: I was just saying that it's not comfortable
2: for people to have these conversations because the average person don't feel comfortable being transparent about their feelings. To that point, the church that I attend is a multicultural church, and my pastors are white. And I remember hearing him a few years ago talk about how he was raised. His dad was a redneck. His dad was pure racist. And so, of course, he grew up with a dad, an alcoholic dad, who was a racist, and that's all he ever heard. And so he made it his mission in life when he became a pastor in Tinley Park, Illinois, to make sure that he fostered multiculturalism. Mm
4: -hmm. He does, yes.
2: Yeah, and he makes it a point of making sure that everyone is welcome there. A lot of times people don't know any better, but it's very, very uncomfortable for people to have the conversation because they don't know what to say when a a Felicia and a Marcus and a Ruby and a Chan say, this is my experience and this is how it left me feeling. Mm -hmm. They don't know whether to say, I'm sorry, (laughs) (laughs) take ownership for it, even though it may not have been them. They just don't know what to say.
4: Yeah. I agree with you, Ruby. And I also think that it's because of fear. When I was at Lake Forest and I was in high school, in the dorm, we had kids in that dorm, girls in our dorm from China, from Korea, from Argentina, from Guadalajara, and from Chicago. <laughs> so, in Wyoming. It was quite a mixture of us. But I still remember one day in high school, Somebody, again, I don't know why I always had these experiences, but somebody put a letter under all the Black kids' doors <laughs> in the girls' dorm. They thought it was this one white girl. I didn't know I was going to study psychology, but I guess back then I knew something. I was like, mm-mm, she did not put that letter under our doors because she's too afraid. So, no, she didn't do it. Somebody else did it. They brought in a consultant, and they met with us, and we had to have all these discussions about why somebody would put these racist notes under um, these Black girls' doors. I figured it out before the consultant did. I was like, it wasn't a white person that did this. It was a black person that did this.
1: Mm -hmm. And it was a black
4: person who doesn't feel like they fit in with the black people. And they wrote this letter and put it under our door so that we would all come together. And (laughs) the consultant was like, really? And we figured it out. And it was a black girl who did it. But Mm. what I did after that, I started doing little discussions. And I called in my diversity talks back then in the girls' bathroom. In the girls' bathroom, I think on Thursdays at six o'clock. We were coming to the girls' bathroom and we would have real conversations. The first conversation we had was with this little white girl who was from Wyoming. And I said, In here, this is a safe space. You can ask anything you want to us, and we can ask anything to you. And she said, Okay, well, I have a question for you. And I said, Okay. <laughs> she said, I just wanted to know is it true that black people have tails? Oh, my goodness. Wow. And my other black friends from the south side of Chicago. they wanted to rip her head off and I was like no we can't do that guys this is a safe space she needs to be able to ask these questions and I said why do you ask us that and she said because that's all I've ever been told and in Wyoming she said I've never seen a black person before she said the only black people I encounter are my hired help and we're not allowed to speak to them we're not allowed to talk to them so I really don't know and I just thought I said no We do not have tails. So please go tell She said, her mom and dad, I told her that. I said, so please educate your mom and dad that Black people do not have tails. But then I would come back the next week and ask them questions, because I had some questions, too. And I would ask them questions that made them feel uncomfortable, too. But every week, we had those conversations. And I felt like we were able to build true, authentic relationships, because we were able to ask those questions in a safe space and not keep going through life saying, we just didn't know.
1: Right. That's my hope for having these podcasts is to try to provide a place for people like me to be able to listen to some of the struggles that other people have gone through that they've never experienced and they don't have anybody that could tell them about it. So I thank all of you for being here. If you think of somebody like me who would want to be an ally and stand up and do the right thing and I've said this on other podcasts where we talked about oppression and discrimination, and I think that it's important that people in power stand with people who are oppressed so that they can bring attention to the message. So it isn't just people in power who hear this group complaining, oh, poor you, nobody really cares about that. But when somebody that looks like them is part of that movement too, I think that makes a difference. If you were talking to someone, and I know I'll just mention this, I have a friend who's a wonderful, wonderful woman. She's a white woman from Pennsylvania who is a nurse and is accustomed to working in a diverse hospital setting. And she said to me, you know, I just look at people like flowers. We're all flowers in one big garden, and we just maybe have some different colors. And she was just very... I don't even know the word to use for what I thought about that. I know her heart, and I know that that was coming from a really good place, but I don't think that the result was a positive result. So I'm wondering, is there anything like that that's ever happened to you where you might want to give a shout out to some people who want to be allies? Like, don't do that. Don't say that. Things like that. Yeah.
3: (laughs) I think one of the worst things a white person can say to a black person, I don't see color.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: I think that's one of the worst things you can say to a black person. If you want to be an ally that I don't see color. That's always been the problem.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> this means something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This stands for something. Mm-hmm. This is it. for something. Mm-hmm. This is worthy of something.
2: Yeah.
3: This is rich in something. Yeah. This is historical in something. Yeah. This is giving, loving in something. This is God-given something. Mm-hmm. This means the world to me. Being, looking, how I look means the world to me. So when you tell me that you don't see this, is that you really don't see me?
2: Right.
0: One hundred percent correct.
3: I need you to see me. Right. And in seeing me is recognizing the value in melanin. Uh
2: Mm
3: There is value in this human being who happens to be just a darker complexion. There's a lot that comes with this. There's a lot riding on this. People have died Mm -hmm. because of this. In making this country a great country following the constitutional law of this country. We want to be Americans. We are Americans, But recognize this has value mm-hmm. also. Long-winded to say is that the question that please don't ask is I don't
0: see color. That was Rich Chan. That was pure. I'm 100% in agreement with you. And so to tag on to that, what I like to say is of something to not think you're doing. And that's creating a diverse environment just because you hire a black or white person to work in that environment. Because just like Chan was saying, it is more than just bringing a white person that has darker skin in. When we come in, we have a culture, there's a whole experience that comes with that. So a diverse environment is not just an environment that has black and white people in it, Mm -hmm. but a reflection of that culture also in that experience would make it a diverse environment, not just the hiring of some, because I've seen places that have Mm -hmm. hired black people, but the culture was still predominantly white and it didn't have any sense of color. To it. And for those places that were inviting or providing services for African Americans, they didn't feel comfortable in that environment
1: either. That's right. I remember writing in the book that I wrote about leveraging diversity it doesn't matter if you hire a black person in a predominantly white company and then expect them to act white.
4: That's
2: right. They have yeah. to
1: talk white, That's they the have point. to dress white, they don't bring any of their diversity with them. You, the yeah, we want you here as long as you fit our mold. And that To me that's the difference between diversity and inclusion that might be diversity you have a little bit of color in your organization but it's not inclusion that is you have to fit with what we want and then we'll let you be here but the minute you get too black we need you out
4: right i would just add onto what marcus is saying about the culture so i worked at this one mental health place and my manager was african-american he was the only african-american manager And he ended up being on the exec board. And he is now the CEO of that company. But one thing that I loved about him, he always told me, he was like, Felicia, he said, we have to be at the table. He said, because if we're not at the table, then the culture won't change. He said, but now that I'm at the table, I only know how to be me. And I love this about him. So he was a C-level person, but when they had their staff meetings, he brought flaming Hots. To the staff <laughs> meeting. <laughs> he brought who he was, Love his it. authentic self, to the meetings. And the white people were like, oh, my God, what is this? And he's like, this, <laughs> these are flaming highs. <laughs> this is what black people eat. And he didn't care. And now he's the CEO, and he still is like that. And that's what I'm saying, I think. But you get to a point, you know, where his confidence is like, I'm going to be me. I'm going to show up and my authentic self. And they're going to have to accept who I am. And that's when you have true diversity, when people are asking you, did you bring those Flaming Hots today? Where can I find them?"
2: You, know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you know? So yeah, I've heard, more... I've heard diversity and inclusion described this way. Diversity is inviting someone to the party. Inclusion is asking them to
1: dance. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's a beautiful thing. So any other words of wisdom for people who want to be allies, who are trying to stand up and do the right thing?
4: I would just add to, I I know um, one school brought me in to do something with it. Their African-American basketball team went to a game down in central Illinois, and they had a horrible experience. Crowd was predominantly white, and they treated them very, very bad, and they were traumatized. So when they came back home, the principal asked me to do something with them and I went to school in that area, so I know what exactly what they were talking about. But when I came in, the principal who was white said something interesting to me. She was like, Um, I know exactly how they feel. And I was Ow. like, um, I was like, Can we go into the room? Because <laughs> <laughs> I do not want to do it in front of the students. And what, what do you mean you know how they feel? What are you talking about? And she was like, Because you know, my my kids are black. But you're not. Oh, oh. Yeah. But, but you're not. <laughs> but so, and I and I just explained to her, I said, please don't say that to anybody else black. Because you have no idea what it's like. Because your skin is white. When you walk out, you're white. So, no, you don't know what, you can have an idea of what it's like. Because mm-hmm. people may look at you different because you have black children. But it's not the same as you being black. So that's what I would just say that people who are interested in being allies. Don't, don't say that. That you know how I feel. Because you don't. Because <laughs> my experience is different. But. I know in the beginning, Kim, you were saying, I think you said that some people, they want to be allies, but they just haven't had the opportunity to connect. I would just challenge people that we all have the ability to connect. And right. some of my white friends even challenged me. They were like, "All do all your friends look like you? So if all your friends look like you, then that means you're not interested in diversity and inclusion because you don't have anybody that's different from you around you. Everybody is able to connect with someone who is different from them. Mm-hmm. And so I would just say, if you are truly trying to do that, do it. Like my boss is white, he lives in Geneva. I live in South Hollywood, in the south suburbs, grew up on the south side of Chicago. He and I have the most interesting conversations. He will ask me, Felicia, I heard this, what does that mean? <laughs> Cause I don't know. And then I will ask him questions and then we just laugh and we go on about our day. But you have to use those opportunities you know, to grow and ask questions. And I think everybody is able to do that, regardless of where you work or what type of position
2: you have.
1: Thank you for that. I think that's absolutely right.
2: And I would just add to that, I remember a couple of years ago, I can't even remember what was going on in America at the time, but my pastor preached a series about discrimination and and diversity and all of that. As I already said, he's a white man who was raised by a racist father. He asked all of us, he said, when was the last time that you invited someone of a different nationality to dinner or to Mm -hmm. a meal? And he said exactly the same thing that Felicia just said, that her friends challenged her with. If you are always with people that look like you, it means that you're not intentional about connecting with other people because sometimes we don't put ourselves out there to network with other people, for whatever reason. The thing that I would say to a person that's being an ally is be conscious of your speech, just like you've already said, Kim, and like Felicia said, challenge those racist statements that you hear. Don't be afraid to say, hey, that's not cool, or I didn't like the way I felt when I heard that. Whether you're a white woman, a white man, a black woman, black man, be okay with saying I didn't like the way that made me feel when I heard you say that.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Do you have any closing comments for the audience?
0: I would say that the challenge continues for us to be comfortable with ourselves first in who we are. The challenge continues to do that and being free enough to be who we actually are. That challenge is greater or lesser depending on when and where you go. And not to go into a whole other subject, but to show the challenge that goes with, because I heard Felicia mentioning and Ruby saying, I'm not comfortable to go wherever I am and just kind of be who I am. That's great. That's a beautiful thing. But I know that with me going into certain environments where they still do evaluations on how well they like you, Mm -hmm. how they perceive you. Mm -hmm. And that will be determining whether or not you'll be invited back, hired Mm -hmm. back to speak, present, work, perform, whatever it is. There's a line that some of us have to continue to walk. What do I need to do to still be true to myself and Mm -hmm. please my clients as well Mm -hmm. without losing a sense of self there's work involved and yeah. we need to have places where we can come back and refuel and have these kind of conversations, sometimes among ourselves. And gonna just speak to something that Chan does and I do now, but Chan definitely has done it for some years. And that's a gathering of men that he brings together to talk about things that needs to happen. Where we leave all egos and all that stuff at the door and we just sit down and have a pure conversation about where we are what we're struggling with, what we're doing well with, and how we can support each other. So I would say we still have work to do with ourselves and accepting each other and the things that we accept because some of us don't accept others of us who embrace white people. Mm -hmm. There's the conversation. Why are you bringing white folks in? We need to do this just with us. So we've got a lot of work still. A lot of work. We got work to do. It's an ongoing challenge, not an overweight situation, but it's an ongoing challenge to be aware of.
3: Can yeah. I add something with Marcus, please? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you, Marcus, for saying that, man. About Absolutely. Me. At this time, the universe has been trying to get our attention for quite some time. And now the universe has it. Mm-hmm. And we're dealing with self now. Mm-hmm. We're holding a mirror up to ourselves and to our families and to our friends and really having a conversation about who we are and why we're here and what we're doing. Maybe we should forget about the conversation about all the isms, racism, sexism, right now, and answer the big question before the doors open to the world and we get back out in the world. And that question is this, what is it to be human? Mm. What is it to be human? Have that conversation with yourself with your family members on this lockdown mm-hmm. and the doors open up, how will you treat the rest of the world from this point on? Mm-hmm. That conversation I think we had, because if we had that conversation about what is to be human, we wouldn't have to have a conversation about a race or sexism, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Because I there is not. only one race, the human race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk
3: about what is to be human. Mm-hmm. Let's deal with
1: I hear a new documentary coming, Chan. <laughs> what is it to be here? <laughs> I hear it. I hear it. <laughs> we all signed confidentiality agreements. <laughs> right about that. <laughs> uh, I
4: think the only thing that I would add is that having allies has helped me. And so I will say that I remember having this one manager who was a white man, and all my allies have been white men. Now, white women, that's another story. (laughs) That's another interview. But I would say for me, my allies have been white men who have said, Felicia, you are more than qualified for this position, but this is what you need. You're not social. You don't go out drinking with them. And I'm like, I'm not gonna go out and drink with them. He was like, yes, you will, because you want this position, right? And I'm like, yes, but I don't drink. And so him just walking me through stuff and checking in with me, It really helped me, you know, and I would say I've had like three or four different white men who have been allies for me. So I'm just saying, I think on both sides, we need to have relationships with people who don't look like us. And that will help us to be more comfortable having these conversations. Like even the boss that I had, the manager that I had, who would bring the flaming hots, we would have conversations because he was old enough to be my dad, but we would have conversations. He like, Felicia, when I was growing up, this is what I experienced as a black man. Mm -hmm. And then I would tell them what it's like for me to be, a lot of the places that I went, I was the youngest person in those spaces, Mm -hmm. and Black, and a woman, and to be in a meeting with a whole bunch of white men who wouldn't even listen to me speak. Again, it's getting that confidence to build up, to just say what I needed to say, and to earn their respect. You're right. And that Marcus, when you were talking about showing up, it's been interesting since we've been inside and being on these virtual platforms, the way some people show up, I'm just like, what? (laughs)
1: Like
4: I can't, if I show up like that, I won't be invited back. (laughs) 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 But some people are very, very, very comfortable, like with bathrobes and curlers in the hair, and you're on a
1: professional Zoom meeting.
4: I don't understand that. So, yeah, you're right. We do have to be conscious about how we show up because we won't get invited back.
1: I've so, had yeah. people in business meetings with their cocktails just because it was after 5 o'clock. This is a business meeting. Would <laughs> you bring a drink
0: and some to the folk board can get meeting? away with that. And,
2: right. <laughs> yeah, they did look <laughs> so, like
1: me. Yeah,
0: yeah. 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 Felicia
3: and Ruby, Thank you so much for being who you are. Thank you.
2: Oh, thank you,
4: Chan. Thank you for being you. Yeah,
2: Yeah. this has been a very rich conversation and I really appreciate it.
3: You know, uh, Marcus and I speak all the time, so Kim and I also. But Kim, thank you for having blessed us with the opportunity to give thought and feeling and emotions to questions.
2: Yeah, exactly.
3: This is a platform that is so much needed and the questions that have been asked and the answers that have been given are historical.
4: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I was going to ask you, Chan, earlier when you talked about code switching. Kim, do you know what he means when he says code switch? Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, I have an idea of what he means. <laughs> I may I know exactly
1: what he means, but yeah. I just
4: wanted to make sure that Kim understood that. Yeah. means. But Chan, when you brought that up, I'm laughing, but there's a serious part. I want to speak to a group of young girls at a high school, And the girls at the high school said, Miss Felicia, can you help us figure out how to code switch? They're in high school, freshmen in high school. And how do we do this? Because it's stressful for us. So not only am I coming to high school, trying to get an education, and then I need to know how to code switch in high school and had to know the terminology for it. It was heavy on my heart, but I felt like I was there at that time for that reason, because I knew exactly what they were talking about. All of us have been through what we've been through, but it's important that we make sure we go back and help the next generation. So it's not as difficult for them as it was for us. So maybe we're surviving. Maybe at one point, it's my prayer, that as a people, we would get to the point where we're thriving and we're not just
2: surviving. big difference.
1: That's right. Yeah.
2: Very big difference.
1: I want that too. Yeah. I really want to take the opportunity to thank all of you. I wanted to have equal men and women, and I had to think about who I thought would bring some good things to the table. And I definitely feel like I chose well my little feather in my cap. I did a good job <laughs> taking my people. And uh, really, I know that it's not comfortable to talk about these things, especially with a white person. And it just means the world to me that you think enough of me that you were willing to do it. My heart is full and I thank you. And I think mm-hmm. that there will come a time when I do this again, I talked to the women, I did one on um, discrimination against women in business. And I said, I'd like to do this again with some men and have the conversation between men and women. And I think I might like to do it with black and white people too. But again, Mm -hmm. choosing the right people. I mean, I'm not going to be bringing on racists on my show, but (laughs) I know racists. It's not like I don't know them. I know them. I married a man whose grandmother was a KKK member. This was in the North, too. I mean, I felt like KKK was something that was Southern, but it was pervasive everywhere. So I know those people. I think it was the movie Higher Learning. At the end of the movie, the one word that it showed on the screen, unlearn. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And I really feel that that's part of my mission in life, is to help people unlearn that Black people don't have tails. Or (laughs) I remember my mother told me once, and I think she must have told me this, I will ask her because I I haven't thought about this when I've been in her presence. But there was a time when she told me in high school that if a black man and a white woman had babies, that those children would be split down the middle and half of their body would be black and half of their body would be white. I don't know if she actually believes that or if she was trying to discourage me from dating a black man. I'm not sure. But I actually believe that she believed that. Mm. similar to black people have tails you know it was like those biracial kids man i know she never saw a biracial kid <laughs> she never did <laughs> so she couldn't have possibly have seen it she wasn't telling me from personal experience i want to sincerely say thank you and really appreciate you thank you kim thank, 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 you. thank you for inviting me
2: oh yes, my, my pleasure.
1: pleasure i hope you enjoyed listening to this show as much as i did producing it and that you'll join me next week when I talk with some Hispanics about diversity and inclusion. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then.
0: This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast. And remember to subscribe.